Hello! Hey. Welcome to Challenge, everybody. It is so good for me to be back. I haven't been in this room in like three weeks because we had our ho Halloween party two weeks ago and then I was gone last week. And so uh, if this is your first time or maybe your second time and, so, and I haven't seen you yet, welcome. My name is David. I am so glad that every single person chose to be here with us tonight. And we're going to be continuing this series that Josh started for us last week, and that is in the beginning, you have a handout, you can follow along with some verses, some points, some fill in the blanks, and I just want to kind of get through a bunch of uh, this stuff that I think God wants to speak to you about tonight, into your life, something that I hope will be encouraging as well as challenging for you and wherever you are in your walk with God or in your, your journey toward more of what it means to, to, to know God. So once again, I'm glad you're here. So I want to start kind of just to break the ice a little bit, just with a, a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer it. But why is it that we sin? Why do we sin? And maybe to, if, if I may be so bold as to personalize this a little bit more, why do you sin? Or why even did you sin today? Chances are, for, for probably most of us in this room, or maybe all of us in this room, We've sinned today due to our constant battle with the flesh. This is just a part of what we have to deal with every day. And so what motivates this, though? Like, we, we suffer through that. We deal with it. And, but something internally is happening to cause us this, this friction, this, this conflict within us. And in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us about the origin of sin, and it also tells us something about how we fall prey to our own pride. In Proverbs 16, it says that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. So tonight, we're going to be talking about a big fall, okay? And so, as Josh shared last week, at the beginning of the Bible, there was God, and then there was creation. He created everything. And that was an awesome message from him. I got to listen to it later. And so that was a really cool experience to be able to understand more about God's authority and everything that he put into creation, including us and what makes us us. And that was really cool. And so the creation occurred. And then after that came a commandment where God sat mankind down and said, he said this in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. He says, The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. He made this big old garden that they were living in. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so this is this one command that God has given the, the first man and then just from their kind of humanity as a whole. So then after creation, and then this commandment is given, next is companionship. God fashions a woman to be with the man. So we've got two people. They're partnered together in this, this beautiful union where they get to be connected with each other and connected with God. And it says this interesting thing in the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. 
It says, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This may seem like a weird detail to include. It may seem like a weird thing for me to have put in your outline. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. And I thought about it. I was like, do I want to deal with this? Well, later this is actually going to become very significant. Okay? I need y'all to trust me on this, okay? So this is going to be significant. Put a pin in it. They, they were naked yet felt no shame, okay? Interesting thing. Just keep that in mind. Okay. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, is a true story about the fall of man. And it all happens in the context of a very short conversation that we're going to look at. And that conversation led to a choice. And so in this, we see three ways that pride motivates our sin, motivated their sin at the beginning of time, and it motivates our sin today. And so the first of these three things is that we distrust God. We distrust God. So the first verse of this chapter, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So, we have talking serpent. This is weird, okay? Once again, this is a, this is a, there's a mystery to the origin of this serpent. We don't know much about this, but we know that it was some manifestation of the devil and that it was somehow, I guess, able to communicate, right? The Bible doesn't spend much time explaining this. And so, because of that, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time examining it. But simply, this is what we're given, all right? There's a talking serpent. And he says this thing, did God really say? Did God really say? Now, that phrase right there really is an easy way to begin questioning God. An easy way to begin questioning God's judgment, right? You see, one prominent aspect of my pride and your pride and all of us is that we tend to prefer our own judgment, right? I, I prefer my own plans, my own ways to yours, and you prefer yours to mine. And this is just kind of the way we all operate by default. We prefer our ways over other people's, even if that other person is God himself. And so we find ourselves in conflict with other people and even with God when we're jockeying in order to have our ways be above his. Which, if we put it into perspective, is completely backwards, of course. Our default posture, though, is to assume that the rest of the world orbits around us. That's something happening deep within each one of our hearts. And we see ourselves as the hero of the story, right? We interpret the words and the actions of other people uh, based on how they affect us. It's, that's kind of the way that we tend to perceive and view the world, is how can I protect myself? How can I get my interests best served? In our, pre, in our kind of self-preeminence that we tend to construct around ourselves and for ourselves, we have a tendency to live, to act in line with our own interests and according to our own plans. This is just the way we are, guys, okay? And so we see this in Genesis 3 somewhat, but we see this in the rest of the Old Testament. 
and the rest of history really, but in the Old Testament, it's littered with stories of men and women who encountered an obstacle, then they took matters into their own hands instead of trusting God, and they paid dearly for it. There's examples of this. I, I can't even, I don't have time to like share all the different examples, but we can see it in the case of Abraham and Sarah. I'm not going to share the story. You can just look it up, I guess. Abraham and Sarah trying to get a child or Moses when they need water in the desert and King Saul when he's faced with a serious problem and he ends up taking matters into his own hands. And because of that, that disobedience, God takes his kingdom away. There's all kinds of examples of this. And we've seen these, this thing probably play out in our own lives as well. And so what, how can we defend against this distrust of God that tends to lurk in our hearts? A defense against distrust is to trust God's faithfulness. We can trust God's faithfulness. And so <laughs> I know it kind of seems obvious or perhaps even pointless to say it. Fight distrust with trust, right? <laughs> I understand that. To some extent, though, that is the simple command that we're given in, in Scripture. We, we fight tr distrust with trust. We need to trust God's faithfulness. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, To trust in the Lord. This is a command right there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's, that's a big, that's a tall order. You know, the, the whole thing. <laughs> with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Because, why? Because that's how we normally do things. We lean on our own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight, right? We need to trust in the Lord. So what are some helpful ways for us to strengthen our trust in him, our trust in God? Some things I can think of is that we can do more to understand who God is. Okay, we can, the more you learn about God and his greatness and his character, the more that you can clearly recognize just how dependable he is. If you would just know God just a little bit more of who he truly is and how great and how faithful he is, then we wouldn't really struggle with trusting him as much as we do. And the hard thing is, though, throughout our lives, we are surrounded by imperfect people. You guys know any imperfect people? Right? Yeah. Yeah, yourself? Yeah. Uh, who, so, but the people around us, they fail us, right? Or maybe you even know people who have betrayed you in some way. This is a hard thing that we have to, to suffer through in life. It can be easy to assume the same of God, right? When we see all the examples around us fail, then we can maybe feel forced to assume that God's just the same way. That, since that reality, that dominates so much of our experience as fallen humanity, but his ways are far above our ways. He is good, and he is faithful, and he is worthy of our trust. And so we can get to know God better, and we can also, another way that we can strengthen our trust in him is to pray. We can pray to God. And in prayer, we can entrust our situation to God, even once things seem to be getting in the way, even when we don't understand how this is going to work out. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, it tells us to not be anxious about anything, but to let your requests be made known to God. 
We're going to let our requests be made known to God. We can let him know. He already knows. But if we let him know those things, then he will surround you with his peace and he will come through for you in ways that you probably don't expect. And so those are the ways that we can try to strengthen our trust in God, ultimately depending on him to even help us. We can, we can cry out to him to help, I believe, help my unbelief, as somebody told Jesus at one point in the Gospels. And so I want to rewind a little bit, though. Let's look at that question again that Serpent asked. He said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So we can kind of answer this question. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, right? That's not what he said. <laughs> he didn't say that. But the serpent uses this question to just to sow a seed of doubt in Eve's heart as she's having to deal with this situation. He causes confusion, which makes her vulnerable to deception. That's the next way that pride kind of enters, is that we are deceived. We are deceived. And so we need to fight this in ways that we struggle with. And so we tend to be deceived in these situations when we are struggling with sin. And so the next few verses of this chapter say this. It says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will, not, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, interesting. A lot, a lot just happened there. Okay, the serpent asked her a question, which got Eve kind of confused, actually. And she actually inaccurately quoted God's command. God said to not eat the fruit of that tree she added this thing, interestingly, we can't eat it, we can't touch it. We don't know, we don't know where that came from. I don't, we don't know why she said that. But we're confused, and she's confused. And, and so that confusion, the serpent then uses this as a foothold to do kind of an intellectual judo move on her to convince her to do the exact thing that God told humanity not to do. And so he, he tricked her in this sense. And that's the scary thing about being deceived is that you don't know it. You don't know what's happening to you. We need to be able to defend against this. We'll get into that in a minute. We can be tricked, however, into thinking the wrong way. And that inevitably leads to acting the wrong way. And so there are two ways in which Eve is deceived in these verses. First, Eve is deceived into confusion, right? She's confused. She clearly misquoted God. And this kind of shaky footing on what God said and God's word, this helped lead her directly into this trap. She wasn't certain about what was real. And so she was prone to kind of this suggestion from the serpent. And so she's prone to this confusion. We like to think that we're smart, we're not easily fooled, but the Bible contains many stories of rational, intelligent people just like you, okay, who got mixed up and ended up doing the wrong thing. We need to be careful. We need to be wise. We need to be, in some ways, the, the, the 
word is crafty for the serpent. Well, we can actually be shrewd or crafty or, or intelligent in the way that we deal with the, the temptation that we face. We need to be wise. We need to be careful in these ways. So Eve is deceived into confusion, and she's also deceived into rebellion. And, and you might not be able to tell, but she's deceived into rebellion because she's convinced by the serpent that God is actually withholding something from her, right? What does he say? He says that if, if, if you do this, you'll become like God. He doesn't want that you to do that, basically. He's trying to withhold something from you. That's kind of the sense that, that she's given. Says that she can become like God by taking hold of the very thing that God said would destroy them. And so the core of deception through pride, the deception of pride is that we think that we can become like God, or rather that we can be our own God. We think that we can be our own God, that we can dictate what's good and what's evil. This is a, a deep core issue of our human condition, is this deception that we think that we can be in control of that. But that idea is utter delusion, and it leads us directly into rebellion against the all-powerful, all-good God. And so we need to defend against this deception. The way we can do this is to know God's truth. We can def the defense against deception is to know God's truth. Because if Eve had a better grasp of who God was, right, and what God had actually said, then this maybe never would have happened. And we find ourselves in the same kinds of sticky situations, as well as just downright rejection of God's authority when we don't know the truth. So we need to be very careful to know God's truth. John 8, 31 through 32 says that, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. So abiding in the word leads to knowing the truth, and knowing the truth leads to freedom from the chains of deception. Our pride leads us to distrust God. Our pride leads us into deception. And in pride, thirdly, we are led by desire. We tend to be led by our hearts into desire in a way that displeases God. Verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So that's how it happened. There you have it, okay? After her exchange with the serpent, Eve gazes upon that tree. She's looking at that thing, and her desire compels her to reach out and taste its fruit. And so in, just like her, in our self-centered pride, we tend toward self-gratification, right? We've experienced this. Even when that means looking upon and acting upon 
things that are ultimately harmful to us, right? See, God has given you and I the gift of sight, right? We can see all the amazing things that he's made. And when we use that gift to gaze upon things which aren't pleasing to God, then we mishandle his good gifts. And then when we indulge in our lusts, we're taking part in a distortion of his creation. We're taking that good design of God and we distort it for our own devices, for our own desires, for our own personal wants, so that we can, get, we can be self-gratified, we can get what we want. And an example I can think of, perhaps an obvious example, is the idea of sex and sexuality, okay? Guess what? God made it, okay? God made sex. And it's a good part of what he created for man and woman to experience and to enjoy. It was part of the whole thing. He looked at every aspect of creation and said, it is good, right? See, but culturally, for us, it is considered normal for us to look at and engage in expressions of sexuality that go far beyond the boundaries that God has set in place for our protection, right? And as a result, people suffer from addiction and deeply broken relationships when we choose to be led by our desires in just that area. And there are so many ways that this, this manifests. I'm not picking just on that one element of human desire. But this is something that is, is rampant throughout all of just the little tiny desires that we experience, that we want, that we want to give into from day to day. And so in a different kind of part of the Bible, in Philippians chapter 3, let me jump to this. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to a church and he's trying to encourage them. And he starts talking about these people that he knew, people that he loved, seemingly maybe friends of his, his that he invested in. And he talks about them in this way. He says, for many people of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, he was emotional. He was, his heart was broken for these people. Why? Because they, it says, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and the glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. I don't want this to be true of me, right? I don't think you want, I don't want this to be true of you. And there's one phrase there that just, just grabs my attention every time I read this verse. Every time I think about this verse, it says, their God is their belly. Just to me, this is just a grotesque image, right? Of, of a picture of worshiping and being led by our cravings, right? Just, just in the way that we hunger, we crave food. Honestly, we're just, we just reduce ourselves to an animal when we choose to be, be led in one way or another by our desires, any kinds of desires, whether it is just a, a literal gluttony or their God is their belly. There's just this, <laughs> that word, I just can't get that out of my head. And there are all kinds of seemingly innocent uh, as well as highly damaging ways that we can follow our desires and our lusts. All these things, when they distort, when they distort God's creation, they lead toward one outcome. Their end is what? Destruction. Their end is destruction. That's what happens when we're led by that, that inner desire that ultimately 
seeks to seek self-gratification through distorting God's good design. The defense against this desire is to delight in God's goodness. Defense against desire is to delight in God's goodness. See, contrary to popular belief, God is not anti-fun. Okay? God is not anti-pleasure. God is not anti-desire. Okay? Right? Perhaps you kind of are struggling with me here. So Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and sequentially. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, it turns out the desire in of itself is not bad. But our desire must follow our commitment to and our delight in God in order for him to bless it. Our desire must follow our commitment to and our delight in God in order for him to bless it. If God, if God himself is your ultimate desire, then he will change your heart. He will rearrange your priorities. He will help you to enjoy healthy desires that allow us to experience his good creation. And he will help you to avoid the distortions that we're tempted to seek for the purpose of self-gratification. In Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Picture that fruit in the garden in Genesis, again with me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Just like in the garden, God is omnipresent and he is able to be experienced closely. We can enjoy fellowship with him and engage with his gifts in their proper place. We can taste and see that the Lord is good and he is incomparably more good than any other source of satisfaction that we could seek, guys. So in light of all of that, instead, mankind chose, right, to taste the one thing that God warned them against. And this is the result. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You guys remember a thing earlier? Okay. Back at the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve, they were naked yet felt no shame. What changed? First, their nakedness in chapter 2, that symbolized their innocence, their openness with each other and with God. They were completely vulnerable. They were open in a, in a way that, that is beautiful. That is truly the way that God designed it to be. But when they sinned, they became insecure. They became guarded and ashamed. Those are the consequences of all sin. Shame, broken relationships, and separation from God. And that pattern, starting in Genesis 3, has spanned history and is built into our broken nature. And as we've seen tonight, God gives us valuable defenses 
against pride, right, in these various ways. But at the heart of it all, we have a much, much, much bigger problem, and that is sin. We are hopeless and defenseless against sin's power. But God has provided a way. He's provided an antidote for our condition. To, I guess to jump ahead of the story quite a bit, it's, it's worth it for us to understand that the antidote for sin is Jesus. This isn't just a defense that we can try to block against. We're, we are not capable of defending against the, the deep and ingrained effects of sin in our lives, in our hearts, and in our world. It's already there, but, but Christ came as an antidote for these things, as a cure in order to heal you and to restore you and to give you the opportunity to, to come back into fellowship with him. God sent Jesus, his son, in order to pay the penalty for our sin that we have committed so that we could experience fellowship with him again. And so that, that is incredibly good news that I'd love to share more with you about if you have questions. In Ephesians 2, it helpfully summarizes some of these things. This is just kind of a longer passage. I'm just going to read it. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is good news. Jesus is the only hope and antidote that we have against the rule of pride in our hearts. And if you humble yourself, if we humble ourselves and move yourself off the throne of your own life and give him that seat, he is powerful enough. He is good enough. He is loving enough to save you from yourself so that you can be brought back in step with the way that you were created to live. We may still sin. We may still struggle. That flesh is still there and that pride still wants to have its way. But he is faithful and he is just to forgive you and to fix what's broken so that you can live in the glory of knowing God. So that you can live in the, no the glory of knowing God and feel no shame. I want to pray for us. Father, thank you for this gift. 
Thank you for your ways that are high above our ways, for your trustworthiness, for your goodness and your love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can be restored and that we can no longer walk in shame. We are, we are deeply indebted to you, but ultimately, Lord, we cannot pay you back. We will not pay you back. And that's good. And that's the way you've designed it to be. This is a gift that you've given to us. And I gladly accept that gift. I pray that you would put it on our hearts if we have not chosen that just tonight to, to make you the Lord of our life, to receive the gift of salvation, of restoration so that we can walk with you, Lord, so that we can walk in the garden with you again. And so, Lord, I pray that you would put something on our hearts to take away from your word tonight. I pray that you would go forward with us, move forward with us, that your spirit would fill us in order to do your will and that we would put away the pride that so often ensnares us, Lord. And I pray that we would hold each other up as we go on this journey together. In Jesus' name, amen.